Welcome to The Truth Simply Put, the teaching broadcast vehicle of the Basilea Commission. On today's teaching by Alexander Victor, God's Word, rightly divided in the light of Christ, who is the central theme of the entire scriptures, will come with simplicity, precision, clarity, and power to instruct, admonish, edify, and build you up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Now, let's dive straight in. Understanding this gospel series 2, part 4. Is that correct? Fantastic. Are you still here? Yes, sir. We left off last week exploring that Jesus came not in the mold that he was expected to come in. Even though, and this is very, very funny, even though there were such plenty prophecies, accurate to the T, describing how he would come. So it turns out that it's not necessarily always a function of ignorance as it is a function of refusal of what the Lord has said. And that happens in the church today. We know what God has said. We refuse it. We are not open to it because we know what we think we want in spite of what God has said. And that's a very dangerous place to be. So the Jews need to understand that the spiritual must proceed the natural. Again, when UTG understanding this gospel series 2, part 4. So they didn't understand that the scriptural, spiritual rather, must proceed the natural. They were expecting a king on a horse, even when it was clear in scripture that this king will come on a donkey. And I explained to you the significance of him coming on a donkey and on, particularly on the donkey's Cold, right, or the baby of the donkey in fulfillment of scripture. I pointed out to you that it was not one donkey that Jesus rode on. It was two. Even though religious stories and Bible stories always tell you donkey. But it was the donkey and the donkey's colt. And it was the colt that he rode on, even though there were the two donkeys present there in fulfillment of scripture, right? Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Right? Remember that? So it was clear and I explained to you what the significance of the donkey was. Because he was a peacetime labor animal. Right? A stallion is a war, or a horse is a war animal. Someone coming on a horse is coming to fight. Right? He's coming to, to dominate and conquer. And Jesus came not riding a horse, but riding on a donkey. Not only was he a peace animal, he was also a beast of burden. He carried the burden and did the work that people ordinarily we're not able to do. Remember that? And that's what Jesus did. Right? I saw a quote that says, religion says, do, 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 grace says, done, done, done. <laughs> and that's so beautiful. <laughs> religion says, do, 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 grace says, So the beast of body and the donkey represented how much works that we had to do that obviously we could not do because we know that apart from righteousness through faith, one cannot be justified. So all the efforts at righteousness at best, self-righteousness amounted to nothing anyway. I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in doing something that doesn't give me the results I seek. I know it's not going to give me the results I seek. Why bother about it? So when I hear arguments like grace came to give you the ability to keep the law, it's one of the most unfounded things I can, I can ever hear in my life. How can grace give you the, 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 
the ability to keep what cannot help you. Because after you have successfully kept the law, you don't get righteousness. <laughs> and to be successfully keeping the law, you must keep all 623 of them. The Ten Commandments plus 613. Such that if you broke one, you've broken all. So you don't get a B class. You don't get a second class upper in keeping the law. You don't get even a first class lower in keeping the law. Okay, you kept 600. You broke 13. Ah, 94 over 100. Distinction. Bros, carry over. In fact, rustication, you are starting from the beginning. Because religion continues to struggle with understanding the fact that the law was not given for you to keep. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The law was given for mankind to break, but for man to keep. <laughs> the law was given for mankind to break. Because the law is God's moral righteous standard. The law is God telling you, if you are going to approach me and deal with me, this is how you are going to do it. No more, no less. And the God that gave it knew you can't keep it. So he didn't give it to you to keep what he knew you couldn't keep. But because God has always dealt only with two men. I've taught you in this house, God has never dealt with people. God has only ever dealt with two men. The first Adam and the second which is to say the last Adam. So because he knew mankind cannot keep the law, the law was designed for one man to keep. It's the one man who kept it that announced that Christ, therefore, is the end of the law. He says to them in Matthew 5, do not think I came to, to uh, abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I explained to you what it means to fulfill. To meet the obligatory requirements of something such that after having fulfilled it, it is no longer enforced and therefore it is set aside. So Hebrews begins to explain in chapter 9 that he takes away the first that he may establish the second. Because the first is now fading away and as I've told you, in our time, has fully, fully faded away. Now scripture says fading away, and these are things that we don't understand, because it took at least 70 years from the ascension of Jesus to when the last of the temple was destroyed. It means that in a 70 year period post-resurrection, there was still temple worship. And sacrifices in the era of grace. There were still Levites and priests of the Aaronic order. Still standing even though grace had been instituted. So you can understand why the writer of Hebrews will say it's fading away. And why I will say to you that in our day it's faded away. Because the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood is all dead and gone. And I say this at the risk of sounding controversial. But where are the Levites that collect the tithe? Because if you are still paying tithe to there should be Levites collecting it. You might as well also be facing the east to pray three times a day. But only one man could keep the law. Every other man that tried to keep it was guaranteed to break it. So if the law was not given for you to keep, what was it given for you to do? To break, man. 
So by the time you break one, realize ah, that's all broken. You try again, you now break another one. You master this one, you break another one. You realize that's all of it broken. You get to the point where your sin becomes exceedingly sinful. And you say, you know what, where is that Savior? That's the job of the law. So Galatians said he was your schoolmaster, your nanny, your babysitter to keep you captive until faith will come. So the law was just a magnifier of sin. For where there is no law, there cannot be said to be sin. If we didn't have a constitution, we cannot know when somebody did something. Does that make sense? So it is the law that stipulates what is right and therefore highlights what is wrong. Make sense? Because there's no wrong in itself. Something cannot be wrong in and of itself. Something is wrong because it's on the other side of what is right. (laughs) Does that make sense? That's why darkness is not a thing. Darkness is not a thing. Darkness is just the absence of light. So when you release light, darkness flees. We don't try to deal with light, with darkness rather. We just turn on light. And as soon as light comes, what happens to darkness? Darkness comprehended it. So it takes stipulating what is right to highlight what is wrong. Make sense? So if you don't even know that you need saving, how do you know, how do you release in time the sacrifice that was given in eternity? So the law came that man might be exceedingly sinful because you can't keep it. And if you kept it, there's no difference between you that kept it and the person that didn't keep it. What's, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point? You kept all of it successfully. Zero. You broke one out of the 623. Zero. Why try to receive zero when I can receive it for free? No. I don't like what I hate. It's pointless. It's absolutely pointless. So the law was given for one man. One. The man. To keep. Because in him keeping it, every seed he gives birth to has kept it. So you see me, Alexander Victor, the 623 laws, I have kept every single one and fulfilled it in my elder brother. So the way that he has come and put an end to the law by fulfilling it, I have in him fulfilled the law. Does that make sense? That's why his imputed righteousness becomes mine. I'm partaking of what he... Does that make sense? Because what he got, he didn't get for himself. What he got, he got for us. Christ became unto us, unto us, for us. Righteousness, redemption, wisdom and sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1 and 30. Is that clear? So these methods were clear. He came for peace. He stipulated in the law and prophets. And, 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 and Jesus makes it very clear in John 5. From verse 39 going down to 41, 42, 43, 44. 45 he says, in that day it's not me that will even accuse you. The one that will accuse you is Moses in whom you trust. And by Moses specifically, he was talking about Matthew, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. He says it's the law. Not Moses, the person. Right? But the law of Moses. 
that will accuse you. This law in whom you trust. This law that you're saying is scripture. This law you're saying is the voice of God. This law you're saying is the instruction of righteousness. This law you're saying is the mind of God. You trust it so much to not lead you astray. This law is your accuser. And he goes on to say in verse 46, he says, for if you believed Moses, or if you believed what is written in the law, does that make sense? You would believe me for he wrote. Wow. So everything you read in the law, and I've taught you that here over and over and over, everything you read in those laws were pointing to no other message but Christ. And so when people argue that, that God did not give the law, I correct them. God did not give the law, but the message of the law is Christ. Let us reason together. The message is Christ. But it, wasn't, it didn't come from God. What kind of confusion is that? Holy men wrote as they were inspired of the Holy Ghost. If there's a synergy of message and the centrality of the message is Christ, then the law could not have come from any other source but from God, if only you understand what it was given for. You will not demonize the law if you understand what it was given for. Because the person that taught you grace is the one that said the law is just and holy and righteous. <laughs> right? The person that taught you grace oh, is the one that said the law is holy and just and righteous. Is the one that said I will not have known what covetousness was. Until the law was given to say, thou shalt not covet. So the law defined covetousness, giving me an opportunity not to even break it, but to show that there was always covetousness in me that could not be defined as wrong because there was no right against which it should be defined. So the law now comes and de deals with covetousness to show me how I have been covetous. Oh, son of man, who will save me from this ungodliness? That's the argument of Paul in Romans from verse 1 right through to verse, from chapter 1 right through chapter 7. She says sin was always there, but sin cannot be imputed when there's no law. Does that make sense? So the law comes now, season occasion of sin. Now brings in, awaken in me, Paul says, every manner of evil desire. That's the job of the law. And in doing that job, the law is just. In doing that job, the law is righteous. In doing that job, the law is holy, fit for purpose. The Lord did his job perfectly. Because he was a forerunner of the grace of God. If you camp there, that's where the problem is. Just like if you are looking at the sun and you camp, I taught you when we began in, in, chapter, in series one, series two, part one, when you camp at John the Baptist. And don't get to Jesus the Baptist. Because John was not the only Baptist. So now he was called John the Baptist by Christians. Not by the scriptures. He was never addressed as John the Baptist. Because he says, I baptize you with this. He is coming. Who will baptize you with that? He himself knew he was not the only Baptist. <laughs> So if you camp at this baptist and not get to that baptist, there's a problem. And that's what's messed up the church today. You camp in this covenant and not realize this covenant was leading to that covenant. That actually came before this covenant. 
Because what you call New Testament is actually Old Testament. What you call Old Testament is actually New Testament. Because Paul explains, he says, for the law, which was given 430 years later, <laughs> cannot annul the promise. <laughs> so which came first? The law or the promise? Are we heirs according to the law or are we heirs according to the promise? That's why I understand that people feel a bit uncomfortable, but the truth is the truth. <laughs> Amen. So they understand his methods because they expected him to come a certain way in defiance to what their law had said he will come. How he, the law had said he will come. So Israel cannot say that we, we don't know Jesus because we didn't know how he would come. They really are without excuse, according to scripture. You can't say he took you unawares when he showed up on a donkey. Because it was written right there, written right there in the law. So they understand his method. And then at the first sign of him looking like what they preconceived he would be when he gave them bread. They're like, ah, he gives bread. Let's make him king. So at the first sign of somebody that looked like He's the change that they needed. You brought bread. You can feed us bread. You can. And you didn't stop at bread. You added fish. Sir, you are our king. <laughs> you are our king. Whether you like it or not. It baffles me how if you can afford to charter a boat... And cross the lake of Galilee from one side to the other. Sir, you can afford to buy your own bread. Has anybody thought about it before? If you can chatter. Do you know how much it is to cross from here now to Oran? Two grand. Two five. How much is a loaf of bread? <laughs> so now imagine imagine chartering a boat you can charter a boat or you can't buy bread but you can charter a boat to get where they will give you bread for free the depravity of the human kind knows no bounds that's why somebody can be driven by her driver to wedding reception and she will fight for food you will rake for them. Give me my malt. You will fight malt, 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 malt. And you drove Land Cruiser or Lexus. Your gele alone. But watch that woman go crazy. That's the depravity of the falling nature of man. You left your house to a wedding reception to fight over food. And as soon as it happens, you can give us free food. It doesn't matter whether, whether we can afford it or not. Yusha can give us free bread. You are king. Totally ignoring every messianic prophecy that had gone ahead of Jesus. Ignoring what he said to them. Say, your, your fathers ate manna in, in the, the wilderness and they are dead. But I am the bread which came down from heaven. Imagine Jesus. I've taught you guys these things when I explained about Elijah. 
Because as far, if you read the Old Testament account, you hear that Israelites received manna from heaven. Jesus then comes and tells them, you didn't receive manna from heaven. I'm the bread which came down from heaven. Your, your fathers ate manna. He didn't say from heaven. And are dead. He said, if there's bread, I'm the bread from heaven. That instantly explains that the manna they received in the wilderness was not from heaven. Not the heaven that you think. Like the heaven they thought Elijah went. Until I showed you how he didn't go anywhere. <laughs> because he never showed up later on writing to the king. <laughs> heaven. <laughs> so he explains to them in John 6 I am the bread which came down from heaven what you saw was just types and shadows because yes. if you study carefully and scientifically you find that he was actually more like bread flakes he wasn't bread it was more like hardened or condensed snowflakes that they could eat and he who controls nature could have caused nature to rain that down it was because of that that he told them, take enough for each day. If you take any more, it will go off. And it become a curse unto you, a plague unto you. And then on the sixth day, take enough for the sixth day and the seventh day. Then the Sabbath. Then he now tells them, <laughs> oh, I love God's word. But me now being the bread, you eat me, nothing not to do, you can't spoil. But that's Moses' bread, that manna. You, it, you take more than what you need for today. It will go off and it will kill you. But this bread, the, the real bread from heaven, you eat it, it gives you eternal life. Eternal life. But they didn't care. Come and be king. He turned them down. Paul would then leverage on that and say the kingdom of God is not meat and bread. But righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Amen? Amen. So I ended up last week saying that physical needs are met, but that's not why Jesus came. Physical needs are met, but that's not why Jesus came. Physical needs are met, but that's not why Jesus came. He came so that by dealing with sin and death, he would restore access and restore the kingdom. Are you here? He will restore access and restore the kingdom. And because he's the image of the invisible God, we've, looked, we've, looked, we've seen this over and over, right? Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 1.3, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's the image of the invisible God. You are created in his image. The image of God is Christ. You are created in the image of God. The image of God is Christ. You are created in the image of God. The image of God is Christ. Christ is the image of God. And you are in the image of God. That means you are created as Christ. Not just like. You are like Christ as a journey to becoming as Christ. In the same substance. Does that make sense? The only thing that keeps us away from that full substance right now is what? Mortality. Because flesh and blood, 1 Corinthians 15, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's the only barrier until. So he is the image of the invisible God. Scripture is clear about that. 
Now, so there's a lot of things that people call what man lost in the garden. People say he lost righteousness, he lost access, he lost, and they're all right. But he summed up all in the fact that he lost his godlike nature because he was made in the image of God. In other words, God consulted Christ to make man. Does that make sense? So all that Christ was, all that Christ is, was naturally imputed to man by virtue of his being created in the image of God. Make sense? Who is the image of God? It's not me that said it. Yeah? Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Firstborn over all creation. Um, let me see Romans 8.29. Romans 8 and 29. For whom he foreknew, that's also. Yes. Mm-hmm. We didn't happen by accident. He foreknew us. Yes, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you see that? Yes, conformed to the image of his son. That he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And let me point out here, please, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. If at this point he was referring to born again as regeneration... Why would he mention Jesus as being the firstborn of many brethren if Jesus did not need regeneration? Jesus was not a sinner. He became sin. And he did not become sin at birth. He became sin on the cross. Yes? He became sin on the cross. He lived a sinless life. Image of his son that he might become the firstborn among many brethren. If this is referring to regeneration, then it is implying that Jesus was regenerated. If this is referring to redemption or receiving the forgiveness of sins, it's implying that Jesus received it first. You guys understand? Are you sure? Whom he foreknew, he also predestined that he, to be conformed to the image of his son. Who is the son? Christ Jesus, right? That he, capital H, referring to Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. If firstborn among many brethren refers to regeneration or receiving the life of Christ, what we popularly know as born again, then it implies that Jesus was the first person to receive forgiveness of sins. First person to receive redemption, regeneration, new life. Which cannot be because Jesus was not born with sin. He was born sinless. Lived a sinless life and on the cross became sin by taking on our sin. Do you understand? So firstborn among many brethren cannot be referring to regeneration. That's why elsewhere we say that he is the firstborn from the dead. Do you get it? So that he might be the firstborn among many brethren here is not referring to regeneration. It's referring to what? Immortality. <laughs> Are you following me now? It's not referring to receiving the forgiveness of sins. It's referring to receiving the end of the forgiveness of sins. Does that make sense? 
Immortality, he was here. When you are metamorphosed or you are received, that's the word for adoption. I've told you the, the, the legal term of adoption is different from the scriptural term. Yes, when you become sons of God vitally. Does that make sense? By receiving immortality in exchange for mortality. That is when your salvation is complete. It's at that point we can start to talk about whether you can lose it. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? It's when you are finished collecting your salvation that we can even start to have the conversation of whether you can lose it. Now, if at that point, as an immortal, you can lose your salvation, go ahead and lose it. Because that is the end of salvation. Does that make sense? Immortality. I keep telling you, there's more to this thing than the forgiveness of sins. Grow up. It's more to this thing. Forgiveness of sins is the means to an end. It's not an end in itself. It's not an end in itself. So he is the firstborn among many brethren. Not firstborn among many who got forgiveness of sins. The age of a lie does not make it the truth. <laughs> Like let sleeping dogs lie. No, we will wake these dogs with lions. We wake them up and eat them raw. Uh, but I was not going to focus on that. So let's go back to verse twenty-nine and continue what I was trying to say. That whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Image, image of his son. Our predestination was to become as the son is. Yeah? Okay. Hebrews 1 and 3. I like verse 1. Every time Hebrews does me something, God. Hebrews 1 and 1. God, who at various times, in various ways, spoke in time past, in time past, in time past, in time past to the fathers by the prophets. They were not as fortunate as we are. Listen to me. There is no, oh Holy Spirit, help your son. There is no level of fatherly experience that can make up for the absence of the revelation of Jesus. I will not defer to fatherly experience at the expense of the revelation of Christ. I can't follow somebody who is not showing me where I'm going. He has been around longer. Doing what? And there's this emotional, sympathetic pull at the heartstrings of the church. Which I dare say is glorified idol worship. To synergize us around the people that have led us astray. I have nothing wrong against the fathers. I'm a product of that. But the day my eyes opened, I decided the path of Jesus for me. I don't have to take what you're saying to show you I honor you. I don't have to. I downplay 
the revelation of Jesus because it offends an old man. In declaring this, it makes you look like those that let it look like. Because you must declare the full counsel of God at whatever cost. Because there's this thing pulling at the heartstrings of the church now, making it look like the, the, the way it's an attempt to reduce the volume of the gospel. And so my heart breaks when I see so-called reformers and so-called New Testament ministers eating from the same plate as these people. Because you can't have this and that. You can't. You can't. It's not this and Is this all that? When we start to frolic and form human affiliations and human associations and human allegiances, such that you start to reduce the volume and color of light. Count me out. And that's what is happening now. Just talk at everyone and make everyone fall in line. No, sir. Let God be true. And I know the implication of what I'm saying. Trust me, I know. I know. I know. I wish I didn't have to say some things. I really did. I really wish I didn't have to say some things. But then necessity, Paul says... Galatians 1. See what Paul starts to say in verse 12. Is anybody here today at all? Galatians 1, 12. You see what Paul starts to say. For, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. If that's not provocative... I don't know what else is. It gets worse. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. And tried to destroy it. 14. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. Being more exceedingly zealous. For the, look at this, traditions of my fathers. 15. See the first word. Stay there. That conjunction changes everything. I'm doing this, I'm following that, I'm zealous for this. I'm, I, I advance brother, my contemporaries. I champion the traditions of my father's but. When he pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, 16, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. When that happened, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, keep going, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Go back to 16, put it up in the TPT. God's grace unveiled his son in me so that I will proclaim him to the non-Jewish people of the world. After I had this encounter, I kept it a secret for some time, sharing it with no one, 17. And I chose not to run to Jerusalem to try to impress those who had become apostles before me. The message. Now he has intervened and revealed his son to me so that I might joyfully tell non-Jews about him. Immediately after my calling, without consulting anyone around me, and without going up to Jerusalem to confer with those who were apostles long before I was. Because if Paul had done that, 
what befell the young prophet and the old prophet. That befallen him. It was because he did not do this that he could pull up Peter and put him in line. Because he did not go to seek their opinion on his gospel. If he had, guess what would have shaped his doctrine? The same Peter. Whom when he was out of line, Paul would have been deadened in his doctrinal understanding to be able to correct. I know like this, but... I know you have the message, but oh, I honor. So you will speak, you finish, we'll take what we can. Sift it. Whatever is not correct, I straighten it. And that doesn't suggest dishonor. On the contrary, it suggests doctrinal discipline. You, you, know, you, know, you know what the, one of the primary reasons for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, besides being a seal, is God's way of guaranteeing you will never be without Him. God's way of guaranteeing. There's never going to be a time in your earthly existence that you will be without me. How much more need another spirit to fortify you? John 14, 16 or 15, somewhere there. Holy Spirit is not enough. You are crying, you need the Holy Spirit, and you're calling the Spirit of dead men. See what Jesus is saying. Jesus, I will pray, for 16, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, a lost paracletos, and that he may what? And I've explained to you forever here does not mean forever and ever and ever. It's an eon, a season. Because once you enter immortality, the Holy Spirit is not in you. (laughs) Once you enter immortality, you become one with God of the same kind. You become spirit. You will not have a spirit. You will become the spirit. Because I've explained to you in this house, at the end of the ages, only one thing will be standing, God. And us in him as him. No different houses anywhere in heaven. You now worship first service, you now enter your mansion, rest, rest small. <laughs> Come out for second service. Then go and enter James' mansion. Come out. We have been bewitched. I've been bewitched. Heaven. Different, different houses. Joy Estate. (laughs) Peace Boulevard. I just next Christians. So forever means until his job is done. Are you hearing me now? And that's what confuses a lot of Christians, including their hell and their lake of fire. And they say forever. The lake of fire ceases to exist. Everything. It's not forever. Eternal damnation is it's not, it's not a thing. <laughs> it's 
It's not a thing. Because if we exist in the kingdom, along with fire burning somewhere, then all things have not collapsed into God. They also exist, and they can't exist side by side. So we are here worshiping God forever, walking in sons, sonship. People are burning forever, and ever, and ever, ever. And you say God has made all things new. The kingdom of God has come. These are things that have been taught erroneously for centuries. And because you come and speak it and it's different, you say that we are, we are not, that we're lying. And God be true. Every man be a lie. So forever means until that spirit delivers you to become spirit. Does that make sense? Go back to that verse, John 16, 17. It's not, it's not even where I'm going yet. You see. I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper that he might abide with you forever. Next verse. The spirit of truth, still describing the spirit, right? The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Somebody sent me a message asking me about seven spirits of God. I think I've talked about it before. There are no seven spirits of God. There's the one spirit of God that has multiple expressions. These seven are just contextually highlighted. Doesn't mean that that's all the expressions of the spirit. All right, yeah, it's expressions. So even Revelation, when it says the seven spirits that proceed from the spirit of God, from the throne of God, it's referring to expressions of the spirit of God. Are you here now? Not multiple spirits. In Romans eight, it's clear the spirit of God is the spirit of Christ. That God is spirit. In John four, is that clear? The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Look at this. But you know him. For he dwells with you and will be. He dwells with you. But when I'm done what I'm doing now, he will be in you. See the reason why in the next verse. That's the verse I wanted you to see. I will not leave you orphans. Other translations say comfortless. Let me see how the TPT puts this, or NLT, one of the other translations. I promise that I will never leave you helpless or abandon you as orphans. This is when he was going to die. Not when he was going to heaven. When he was going to the cross. As I go to die and leave, I will not leave you alone as orphans. I will come back to you. So the Holy Spirit was Jesus coming back without a body because now you we were becoming his body do you remember that church consciousness the holy spirit coming into you was jesus christ returning without his body because he cannot be in you with his body so the only way he can come into you is to drop his body and Possess your body. That's why you cannot be demon possessed. At the same time, Jesus says he is pouring out the spirit without measure. That means the measure of the spirit you have in you, right, is even too much for you. You will not use all of it, it's overflowing. There's no room even for an inch of a demon spirit. Are you here? There's no room. 
So the Holy Spirit is there to guarantee that you are never alone. How much more that you are needing to look for an auxiliary spirit to complement or augment the Holy Spirit because it turns out he's not holy enough. Or he's, he's fully holy but not fully spirit. So come, Abby, Ellie, Mama, JJ. People are here in heaven not doing anything. Walk there. Holy Spirit need help. The church is too tough for him. Hurry, hurry, hurry. We need you in Nigeria. Go and help the Holy Spirit. Because it looks like these Nigerians, they have passed his power. So come, carry your dead brethren. Gideon, Abel. Just carry spirits. Go and help the Holy Spirit to help them. I heard a reformer writing on Facebook recently, days. And he's saying that when, when believers die, they don't go to heaven straight. They go to the bosom of Abraham. See, see here, just when I die, just leave me there. Because I've had a better reality than Abraham. So if I'm dying, and then it's Abraham that will be cuddling me. Just leave me here. Just, it's okay. Because it, it, was, it was apart from me, Abraham could not be made perfect. Because we don't understand allegories. We don't understand parables. We don't understand that that story never happened. Because that's the nonsense that has inspired Christianity. That's why I told you it's one of the most dangerous religions, Christianity. Between you and us, there's a wide hole. You can't jump from us to you. You can't jump from you to us. So I didn't consult to the elders. I didn't go up to Jerusalem. So we've established beyond reasonable doubt that Christ is the image of God. We've also established beyond reasonable doubt that we are created in the image of God. Do the math. Christ is the image of God. It's not an abstract. We are created in the image of God. It's not an abstract. That means we are created. That's why I said that when we were created in the earth, we were created with dominion that we did not need to apply for. The believer is not praying for dominion. The believer is not chasing after dominion. Dominion is the exclusive preserve of the believer. Because the stock from which we were drawn, the stem from which we were hewn, is a dominion stem. That's why God said, let them have dominion. That was consequential. He wasn't explaining to you your purpose. It was consequential. You, 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 are, you are my image. And he is the image of the invisible God. All things were made from him, through him, for him, by him. He is the image of God. And you are created in that image. That means whatever authority the son has, you have. 
Does that make sense? So by virtue of being a son, you share in the authority of Christ. Right? I've also explained as we started this series too that Christ is the kingdom of God. Right? And the system of that kingdom. So if you are created in the image of God, which you are, it means that you are created with the kingdom of God hardwired into you. Because this Christ is the kingdom of God. Because he's the son of God, because he's the image of God, because he's the kingdom of God, that is why, according to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, the government is upon his shoulders. Are you here? Because he is the kingdom. The government of the kingdom is upon his shoulders. I went on to explain to you that Jesus, in dealing with the sin issue, dispersed grace and mercy on all occasions. I explained to you last week the difference between grace and mercy. John 8, from verse 1. Jesus came to deal with sin, but sin is not the message. John 8, from verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. I keep asking whenever I read the story. Where was the man, sir? Because a woman does not adulterize by herself. A woman was caught. Caught. Not, 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 not the way informed that she committed adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. We caught her doing it. That's fine. Now Moses... In the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Or what do you say? They went to trap him. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Listen to me. This is Diabolons, the accuser. This is his worst nightmare. That he will go and rattle on you all he wants and say, and God is as though. That's why I told you he's of fairer eyes. The way they have twisted it is of fairer eyes to behave iniquity. That God does not see your sin. No, he sees it and removed it. He saw it. He saw it. Oh, that's why he sent Jesus. He saw it. But he acted as though it meant nothing to him because it meant nothing. Yes. He removed it. So now they're coming and saying, look at how we caught her. It's not hearsay. We caught her doing it. Moses says, she dies. How are you? Now picture how long he wrote for. Some people postulate for fun that he was writing out all the laws that implicated the accusers. Next verse. When they continued asking him, he raised up himself and said to them, 
he who is without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. I'm co- of course, I'm sure you know it goes without saying that Jesus knew that no such person existed. He knew. There's nobody accusing. As I've told you, don't let people talk down on you because they seem differently. Most self-righteous people seem differently. They have another translation of their iniquity. Some of their translations are amplified. Some is easy to read version. Let's see. Who's the last sin? Cast the first stone. Put the next verse up, verse 8. And again, again. Verse 9. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, one by one, drop their stones. Beginning with the oldest. <laughs> Even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. Next verse. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Please stay here. No one, Lord. What happened there? She confessed him as Lord. She did not confess sin. Jesus had not died. But watch this carefully. But where sin, sin was involved, there was no repentance required. No repentance given. As prerequisite for forgiveness of sin. Because the old woman repented. Show me where. But she said, no one, Lord, it was her falling into his hand because she acknowledged him as Lord. That was pre-cross Jesus. Pre-cross, pre-death, pre-shedding of blood. But you see, Because you see, Dr. Christianity doesn't understand that Jesus was Lord before he became Lord. And that he now is Lord after God made him Lord. You know, because God now exalted him and made him Lord. But he had always been Lord. Before this son glorified, become Lord. So she said, no one Lord. Lord. I explained something to you when we dealt with 1 John 1. Long time ago, the whole conundrum of if you confess our sin, it's faithful and just. And I explained to you that first of all, beyond even, I like to tackle scriptural interpretation from the most difficult point of view. So it doesn't look like we're trying to explain something away. Yes, we, we even agree that, this is, that James said, John said, if you confess our sin, I agree. No problem. Let's not even try and look at context. What was he referring to? Who is the we? Is he believers? Is he because John was very, very difficult in his writing. One minute in a verse, he's writing about the world. Next minute, writing about Jews. Next minute, we is referring to the entire world. Next minute, we is referring to sons of God. John is always interchanging, placing himself in the scenario in which he's writing. That's why it's difficult to understand what he's saying. 
Does that make sense? When it says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we kid ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's not referring to believers. He's not referring to believers. There were Gnostics in the church at that time. People who had come in and started saying, there's no res- in fact, there's no resurrection. In fact, you know what? There's no even sin to say Jesus came to die for sin. There's no, there's, a human being cannot sin. That's agnosticism. And they were prevalent in the church at the time among the tribes of Israel when John was writing. It was those people he was addressing when he was saying, if we say we have no sin, referring to those people that believe that they have no sin that needs forgiving. Not saying if we, sons of God, he came to take away our sins, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How then are we saying, how then will somebody stand and say, if we say we have no sin? I thought he made him who knew no sin to become sin, to become the righteousness of God in Christ. How then are you coming and saying to us now, 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 that if we say we have no sin, we are lying? Then what, what did Jesus come to do? I thought he came to take away sin. But the we here is not referring to we as believers or even we as the world, but we as in the people among us that are saying that we don't have sin, so we don't need what Jesus said he came to do. Does that make sense? Then he goes and says, if we confess our sin, He's peaceful and just. Who is confessing our sin? Let's assume that it's all of us. It's not also. It's referring to those agnostics among us. If we confess, which means if we acknowledge our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. But let's assume he's talking to us, believers and Christians. Now look at it parallel with other scriptures. You now come to Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... That's the formula for receiving forgiveness of sins. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And believe in your heart that God raised him up from the dead. You shall be saved. So Paul says you are confessing the Lord Jesus. For the forgiveness of sins. Or for the receiving of salvation. He says confess the Lord Jesus. Right? The same Paul now says in 2 Corinthians. For we know that God made him. 5 and 21. Who knew no sin to become sin. So the Lord Jesus became sin. So at some point, sin was Jesus. Jesus was sin. Yes, if the formula for salvation is that we confess the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts and be saved, and John is saying, if we confess our sin and we know that Jesus became our sin, then confessing our sin is directly proportional to confessing Jesus. Nobody gets forgiven for saying, God, I sinned yesterday. Nobody gets forgiven for saying, ah, I stole three days ago. So he doesn't know. From before he formed you, he knew. So what does a confession of it do? But yeah, it's all of us that are to confess our sin. Sir, we know our sin. Him, our sin. Him, who became our sin. Christ Jesus. You say we should confess our sin. I confess my sin. I confess my sin. Him, the Lord Jesus. Because you see, when we say Christ became everything I was 
so I can become. You don't understand. God needed to punish sin. The soul that sins shall die. God was now ready in the fullness of time to punish sin. Somebody stepped in, became the sin. God punished. God did not punish righteousness, sir. He did not punish holiness. He punished sin. What qualified Jesus to go through what he went through was that he became my sin. Became my sin. So that's why it pleased God to bruise him. Because as he was being bruised, guess what was dying? Forever. For God, Isaiah 53, I think 6, for God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. So the reason why God allowed Jesus to go through what he went through, the pleasure of it was this beef I have with the world is going down. So we confess our sin. Yes, yes, him who became our sin. God needed at one point to look for holiness. He becomes holiness. I told you last week, God is looking for righteousness. He becomes my righteousness. God is looking for people to be sanctified. He becomes my sanctification. So everything, that's why I said to you, God is not demanding of me. Anything Jesus is not supplying on my behalf. Hallelujah. So she says, no one. Lord. Put it back up in John 8, 11. Jesus said to her, well, neither do I condemn you. Go. Verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He just shone. He just shown them what light does in darkness. Yes. And it comes to dispels, dispels darkness. He says, I'm the light of the world. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Yes, when Jesus said, go and sin no more, he was not leaving it in her hands to be sin free. When he said, go and sin no more, he was telling her she will sin no more because the sin He wasn't saying, go and make sure you don't sin again. No. It's an emphatic, definitive statement. Go. And sin no more. You see, you have sorted out the sin problem. As you go now, you will sin no more. Look at Matthew chapter 9. He dealt with the sin problem easily. You know, his church that has made sin such a big deal. Jesus was always. Verse 1. Matthew 9 and 1. So he got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. <laughs> That's Capernaum, where he had his house. For those of you that didn't know that Jesus owned a house. Mark chapter 2. 
Mark chapter 2, I need verse 1 in some translations. CNLT. See the message? Amplified. You can James. Thank you, Father. Okay, so we go back to Matthew 9. You can do your study on it later. you see that. I actually had a house by the seaside in Kapana. You know, most times, most times we miss certain little details in Scripture. We forget that Jesus was not just a carpenter's son. He was a carpenter. Which in his day meant successful furniture maker. Just like tent maker in that, their day refers to a building construction engineer in our day. That's what Paul was with Priscilla and Aquila. Because Matthew calls him carpenter's son. Mark says he's not the carpenter. And don't forget they're talking about a 31-year-old man. A 12-year-old boy. He was in the family business. Matthew 9 and 1. <laughs> he got into a boat and crossed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic man lying on the bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. The sins are forgiven you. At once, one of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. Go back to verse 3. This man blasphemes. Because he said your sins are forgiven you. Paralytic man, nothing suggests he was dumb and therefore could not speak. He was paralyzed. So it wasn't as though he was forgiven because he could not confess. This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, 9 and 4, Matthew 9 and 4. Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Hilabagaza. Your sins are forgiven you. Or to say, arise and walk. Your sins are forgiving you. It's easier. Who is getting this thing? Jesus said, that is too much work. Do you understand? He said, that's, that's too much work. Why are you stressing me? Which is because once we deal with the sin problem, Everything wrong in the world is a function of sin. So once we deal with the sin issue, Jesus reprimanded them. Your sins are forgiven. Arise, take up your bed and walk. It's easier. Because if you had a reason taking up your bed and walked, you are still with your sin. But once your sins are forgiven, everything else. That's why I explained to you last week. That's why when Solomon as a type 
comes and says, I want wisdom and understanding. God says, okay, I'll give you wisdom and understanding. And also. So once you receive forgiveness of sins, my God, it's the biggest miracle. Which one is easier, Jesus asks them. Your sins are forgiven or to say, arise and walk. Okay. But that you may know that the Son of Man, look at this carefully, don't rush, has power on earth. Not the Son of God in heaven. Not the one that will be glorified and go away. See, the Son of Man on earth. Now, now, now like this. Now like this. Son of Man on earth. To forgive, so that you will know, eh? Okay, you okay, you want me? Okay, so that you will know that the Son of Man on earth has power to forgive sins. Go on. Wait, hold I don't want to rush this thing. Please stay with me here. Eh? Why did Jesus not say? So that you will know that the power, the Son of Man has power on earth to heal the sick. He was about to heal a paralyzed man. But he doesn't say, so that you will know that I can heal. He says, so that you will know that I can forgive sins. Get up and walk. So, it was the power he had to forgive sins that was healing. Because you brought a paralyzed man. Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. They go crazy. Somebody is lying down, you are saying sins are forgiven. First of all, who are you even to forgive sins? Eh, which one is easier, Mbok? Your sins are forgiven or arise and walk. In other words, what I said is easier now. But okay, you, you're even that, you say I'm blaspheming, right? I, I can't forgive sins so that you can know that I can forgive sin, walk. Not so that you can know that I can heal. Because after all, what I said in the first time was not about healing, it was about forgiveness of sin. So let me also prove to you that I can heal, walk. No, he says, let me prove to you that I can forgive sins. Get up and walk. So healing was an offshoot of the forgiveness of sins. So he didn't do that to prove to them that he was a healer. But that he was savior. And in the package that is soteria is your healing. Inside. I didn't come to heal. I didn't come to I came to save. I didn't come to feed people bread. I came to save. I didn't come to mend marriages. I came to save. I didn't come to teach you business. I came to save. Seek and save the lost. Okay. But you don't seem to understand what forgiveness of sins means. Walk. Please walk quickly. Don't waste my time. So that you can know that I have power to forgive sins. So Jesus healed from his power to forgive. Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. That's what is written there. Take up your bed. And he arose, obedient, paralyzed man. 
arose I like to be a fly on the wall sometimes I can imagine the four friends go where our guy you passed in Jesus house So I don't like to disobey Jesus. I said I should carry my tent and go to my house. <laughs> there, doing what? Okay, I understand. He did not tell you to go to your house. Okay. It's alright. Right. As for me, I was total. So now go meet me for house now. And that was it. Because son of man has power to forgive sin. One more example. Luke 7. See, look at me before you go there. Jesus never made Jordan sin. Never. His message was singular. The kingdom. The major that sin like, what's that? What's this about giving you? Luke 6. Luke 7, I beg your pardon. 36. I love this account as well. I love how Jesus deals with sin. Luke 7, 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house. Trust Jesus. And sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city. Look at her description. Who was a sinner? This means both Luke writing. And Theophilus reading. And everybody else in this city. Plus the Pharisee knew that this woman was a notorious sinner. Do you understand? It was a sinner. This is Luke, so writing, Dr. Luke. See, this woman was a sinner. I wonder how, I'm curious, how does the, the TPT put this other message? 37. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman off the streets. Look at this. See? See, you love your pastor. See now, it says known to all. Known to all. To be a prostitute. The message. Just then a woman of the village, the town harlot. Not a print card remains. Business card. And open a LinkedIn profile. Now, do you see why I teach the way I teach? I, I, I study nomenclature. I, I'm not in a hurry to run over stuff. Since a woman was a sinner, I will ask this what does this mean? She was a sinner. I mean, she had an appellation. She had an, her sin had become her identity. She was proper twisted. That twisted people called her twisted. She was so messed up that messed up people looked like saints next to her. It's not enough that Jesus is even in the house of a Pharisee eating. That's already a problem. You're in the house of a Pharisee and it's not crusade you went there to conduct. You're already in the Pharisee's house grudging with a Pharisee. That was not enough for you, Jesus. The town harlot came to meet you in the house of a Pharisee. Not any harlot, the one.
the one. Now meets you in the Pharisee's house. It gets worse. 37. Same verse. She brought him to him. Knew that Jesus was sat at the table. In the Pharisee's house. This woman brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And stood at his feet behind him weeping. And began to wash his feet with her tears. And wiped them with the hair of her head. And a known prostitute began to kiss his feet. And anoint them with the fragrant oil. Later on you will hear that this was significant of his burial. Because they brought him gold. Frankincense, I'll explain this later, and myrrh. Myrrh was the fragrant spices here used to anoint and prepare and embalm someone who is dead because you don't want his body to see decay. What David had prophesied of Jesus, you will not suffer your holy one to see corruption and your son to see decay. So when the wise men brought these three things, they brought them significant of the mandate on the life of Jesus. Frankincense representing his prophetic office. Gold representing his kingly or priestly office. And then myrrh representing his sacrificial office. As a lamb. This is a king. This is high priest. This is sacrifice. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Kissed his feet, anointed them with the fragrant oil. Next verse. Now when the Pharisee, Pharisee himself, who invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, who is touching him. Pharisee, for she's a sinner. Tippity please, 39. <laughs> 39. When Simon saw this, what was happening, he thought, this man can't be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman is touching him. You see why I've always told you that any believer that feels they are called to the ministry of condemnation is walking by a familiar spirit. You are holy police. Your mandate is to be the prefect of righteousness. It's your duty to ensure nobody falls out of line. You, you didn't even fall out. You never were in line. You don't know where the line is. Hey, hey, see, see what, see what wisdom is doing. See what, does it look right to you? People like that are worse than murderers. Does it look okay to you? What this person said, the way they said it. Who, which one concerns you? First of all, let he that thinks he stands. He that thinks. Didn't even say let he that stands. <laughs> so there's some of your standing that is nothing beyond a thinking. Some of your standing is nothing beyond the thinking that you are standing. 
Because God's servants, those that are serving him in ministry, to their own master, they stand and fall. Romans 14, 4. And God is able to make him stand. God. He will stand for God. There are people, even if God wanted to let some people fall, all that needs to stop them from falling is seeing that there are people who want them to fall. Assuming God had it in his nature to allow wisdom to fall. The moment you recruit yourself as a propagandist, as an advocate for his fall, you stopped his fall. Because God will never let somebody fall to fulfill your prophecy. So answer your prayer. Father! You know this person is evil. That, that's who he came for. That's why I told those of you that feel like the boy that broke your heart should die. No, he will not die. He'll be fresh. Fresher than you. Why? Because Jesus died for him too. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't confuse consequence for your actions as punishment for sin. The punishment for sin was put upon Jesus. But if you collect some things that people are sharing, <laughs> you will share it with them. And Jesus is still Lord and still died for your sins. Don't mix it up. HIV is not from heaven. No. Say, ah, God, I punish him. No, 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 no. God doesn't do that. Only good gifts come from him. Does that make sense? Oh, maybe God is punishing me for my actions. No, please, don't insult God. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Take responsibility for your actions. God is punishing me. What did he do to Jesus? So you'll be upset. You see the person come to church fresh. You now feel sad. <laughs> oh, more sessions were so great. The only thing that just made me feel bad was that my ex was there. Excuse me, he's coming next week. I prophesy to you. Somebody will get up, Havila will make him sit next to you. That's the day that Alfred will get up and say, Hold your neighbor and sing to him, I need you. And you'll be like, Get up, drop your things. You'll be like, I pray for you. You, you pray, I pray God will punish you. And they'll say, turn to him, look at him in the eyes, say, it is his will. <laughs> you now go, you are Do do ti la ti do. 
And every time you see them, you have cancer. Briefly. Because you're expecting thunder to fall from heaven and fire them. Excuse me. First of all, it is their stupid loss that they broke your heart. Because you see, royalty like you cannot be disadvantaged. So if a guy or girl thought that they needed to dump you, hey, keep moving. It's all right. You learn a couple of lessons. So it's okay. Nothing missing, nothing broken. Yousef, stop being stupid. Hmm? Having said that, you should also remember that the, the blood of Jesus that saves cannot kill. The blood cannot be saving you and killing you. They are forgiven too. It's, it's bad what they did to you. But you see what they did was factored in what Jesus did. And that goes for you guys though. I know we have a small club of guys who have been broken, heartbroken by ladies. And there are some ladies that are serial heartbreakers. Your sins are forgiven. Rise up, take your things and go to your house. So Jesus, <laughs> turning to this Pharisee by the name of Simon, hearing what Simon said, if this guy is a prophet, if I now know he's not a prophet, you can't perceive this woman. Ah. Look at what Jesus says to him in, in verse 40. Oh, beautiful stuff. Look at Simon 40. Jesus answered and said, look at Jesus. See our elder brother. Simon, give me full text. Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, or rabbi, say it. Jesus said, there was a certain creditor. He starts to tell a story. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, two people owing him. One owed 500 denarii, which is a lot of money, and the other 50. And they, when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? The one who was forgiven 500 denarii debt? The one who was forgiven 50 denarii debt? The one who was forgiven 500 million naira? The one who was forgiven 500,000 naira? Who would be more indebted and grateful to the person that forgave him? Next verse. Someone answered, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And... He said to him, you have rightly judged. Keep going. So he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You give me no water for your feet, Pharisee. Pharisee that knows the law, or keeper of the law, that knows that you welcome guests at the door with those water pots and somebody to wash their feet. 
You gave me no water for my feet. You're broken the law. You're guilty. But she has washed my feet with her tears. Wiped them with the hair of her head. Go on. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. Which is to say at the time Jesus was speaking, she was not interested in what they were saying. She was just kissing his feet, wiping his feet, and oiling his feet. Since the time I came in. Next verse. You did not anoint my head with oil. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you. Her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, after he had forgiven her sins, he then informed her. (laughs) (laughs) Sir, before the cross, went around just Without ado, nobody was confessing sins to him. You realize that they only confessed to the wrong person, John. Remember? I showed you two weeks ago. They came confessing sins to the one person that could not forgive their sins. Came confessing sins to John because he stood there with towel of good skin. Licking honey and chewing, chewing locusts. But when the Baptist came, nobody needed to confess. Nobody needed to even ask for it. Freely given, sir. Freely. Freely. He didn't preach sin because honestly, he didn't rate sin. He didn't rate it. He didn't rate it at all. It wasn't an issue. So you see, your sins are forgiven. You, you too, your sins are forgiven. They, you are a sinner. You are, you are known. In this. Your sins are forgiven. He dispensed forgiveness freely. And then follows it up with the promise of eternal life. Restoring to man what he Lost. Full circle. Because what cost, what came about by the fall of man? Sin. It was what man did that started sin. Not necessarily that what man did was sin. I explained this to you. But that act of Taking his eyes away from the faith of God. Disobedience. Moving his eyes from the faith of God. Moving his eyes from the gospel. Of faith without works. Because what happened to Adam? Adam wanted to be like God by doing. You're created in God's image. Nothing to do with you. There's voices, religious voices. 
heresies come to you and say to you, ah, no now. If you eat this thing, you would you would be. If you, you will. If you, you will. Basically, do something about this. So take your life into your own hands. So. God has something that he doesn't want to share with you. So I was telling you to not eat, but once you eat this thing, you will become like, oh, if I do, I will be. So instantly, man reverted to works and fell. And that fall began the cycle of the nature of sin. Are you here now? Now, I said Jesus comes and he's dealing with the same problem and he's dispensing, willing, willingly dispensing forgiveness, dispensing grace, which is ushering us into what? Eternal life. Eternal life, which is what man lost. Does that make sense? Eternal life. Hear these words carefully, or these phrases. Same difference, all of them. Eternal life, immortality, righteousness. Are you here? The kingdom, eternal life. Eternal life, immortality, righteousness. If you like, add the image of God. Are you here? Yes. The kingdom, eternal life. Eternal life is immortality, which is only attainable by righteousness. Righteousness, which is the very nature of God, which can also be translated the image of God. Does that make sense? The nature of God. The standard of God. The, therefore, the reflection or representation of God, which is to say the image of God, who is Christ, who is the kingdom. Does that make sense? Christ is the image of God. Man is created in the image of God. Christ is the kingdom. Christ is the righteousness of God. Christ is the life of God. Christ is the bread of heaven. Christ is our sanctification. So everything that Christ is to God, I am in Christ to God. So if he has life eternal, and I'm made in his image by virtue of regeneration, I, am, I have life eternal. Does that make sense? If he has immortality as the firstborn from the dead, it means I have the hope of immortality. Which is as good as done. Because faithful is he who promised. And he didn't just give you his word. He gave you his spirit to seal it and guarantee that even if he wakes up and wants to change his mind. He cannot. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit of promise. <laughs> the Holy Spirit of promise. The promise of what? Immortality. Or the vitality of eternal life. The vitality, the tangibility. The, the eternal life that is eternal. Because now you have eternal life, but you don't have it. Does that make sense? You have it, but you don't have it. Because your, this, your body cannot handle eternal life. So this body has to be dropped off. And then you receive the body that can handle eternal life. But God has guaranteed by his spirit that that body is waiting for you. 
It's guaranteed that body's waiting for you. So we walk as though we have it. It's not a prayer point. Father, on the last day, and the role is called, may I be in the number. We were predestined. That means we are the number. No, we're not in the number. We, we are in the book because we are the numbered. We are the ones that have been numbered. We are the numbered. He who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed. I'm not in the number. I'm in the book. I'm the number in the book. So it's a done deal, sir. That's why Paul will say, comfort one another with these words. Why have, it, have I taken all the time to go through this? So that you can understand that it is one gospel. It's always only ever been one gospel. When Jesus died, his own disciples believed it was all over. I'll start to round up from somewhere around here. After all that the prophets prophesied, after all the law said, after all Jesus began to tell them how he would go to Jerusalem, remember from last week, how he would be given up, killed, buried, and how he would raise back to life on the third day. He died and these disciples absolutely forgot or discarded everything he ever told them. I'm saying this to explain to you how the gospel, how the propagation of the gospel began. It's important. And how he brought in the errors he brought in in the early New Testament church. Because if you don't understand this trajectory of all I've been teaching, you will not understand when we tell you that there were discrepancies in application in the early church. The early church took a while to come into the vibe of the gospel. That's why I'm explaining all of this to you. So you think, oh, Peter taught a different gospel. Peter, Paul spoke a different gospel. Jesus spoke a different gospel. They didn't. Abraham heard the gospel in Galatians 3, verse 8. It says, and scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Saying, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And what does scripture call that? The gospel. And because he didn't say death, burial, and resurrection, does not mean it was not the gospel. Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham saying, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And Abraham believed the promise. And because he believed, it was credited, advanced to him as righteousness. Which gospel did he hear? The same gospel. Because God did not say to Abraham in his tent, Abraham, Abraham, Jesus is coming, he will die. He will bury. He will raise again after three days. Do you believe? But I'm like, I believe. Okay, hold on. Two angels are sending you some righteousness. Because it was credited to him, no? So sometimes we can get unnecessarily pedantic and forget that the gospel is there in types and shadows all through. This is, this is not even coming to the point where Abraham sees a foreshadowing of that in Isaac. We're talking long before Isaac was promised. 
Because Abraham did not ask for Isaac. I've told you over and over. Go and read your Bible. Remember they asked, even ever asked God for a son? He said, what will you give me seeing that I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. It was God that opened his own mouth by himself. And said, me, I'll give you a son. From eyes from this era. Are you here? And he dies and this guy is... See Luke chapter 24. <laughs> Very interesting story. Has anybody learned anything? Yes. Luke 24. I will go from verse 13. Give me the TPT just so that there's modern English. Because it's a bit of a long read. I'm going all the way to about 27. Later that Sunday, two of Jesus' disciples, two of Jesus' disciples, not Pharisees. Hello? Not the mixed multitude, not some random Jews. Two of Jesus' disciples that had walked with him for three years and a bit. Right? We're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a journey of about 17 miles. That's about 30 kilometers. They were in the midst of a discussion about all the events of the last few days. That's the death and the burial of Jesus, right? When Jesus walked up, or actually rendered, what appeared with them. That's the correct rendition. How does the New King James put this? So them traveling that same day to a village, call them house, seven miles from Jerusalem. They talked together all of these things which had happened. So beautiful. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He came from nowhere. Does that make sense? And he says, while they conversed and reasoned, the word reason there is the word, I put it down, is the word susetio, S-U-Z-E-T-E-O. And it's important for what I'm about to show you. The word reason there, in English, it sounds like a good thing. In the original language, it's a problem. While they conversed and reasoned, how does the TPT put this verse? We'll come back to it. TPT transliterated. Hallelujah. Luke 24, 15. They were in the midst of a discussion about all the events of the last few days when Jesus walked up and accompanied them in their journey. Um, let me see the message. 15. In the middle of their talk and questions, okay, give me the NLT then. Verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things, which is how it renders, renders reasoned, Jesus himself suddenly came and began to walk in with them. Go back to the TPT. Was it, was it TPT? No, they cast it out. Message. That said questions. Verse 15. In the middle of their talk and questions. The word suzetio means, the one translated reasoned in King James. Actually means to argue. Or to question. Not to agree. Not to discuss. Not to say, oh yes, it's true. You know, yeah, no. So what was happening, actually, as these two guys were walking, was that they were arguing about the details of what had happened. Are you here? And you can imagine, imaginatively, that the questions or the arguments would have been along the lines of, nah, he couldn't have been Jesus. He couldn't have been the Messiah. How can he be the Messiah? And do you see how they beat him? No wonder Peter betrayed him. If I, no, but Peter should not have done something like that. No matter how bad he was. Loyalty is loyalty. But you said if it was you standing next and seeing somebody beat, being beat to within an inch of his life, would you not run? That's what was going on. There was nothing they were saying that they were agreeing on. 
Does that make sense? Because each disciple had his own perception of what had happened. Disciples. I'm trying to explain to you the advent of the gospel. How the gospel begins. And I know some of you feel like, why do I need this? There's a grounding you will never come into until you understand the particulars of the gospel. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's a stability you will never have. There's the kind of witness you can never be if you don't understand this. And those witnesses will beat you black and blue. They will beat you black and blue. Figuratively, I mean, metaphorically. Because you don't have a clue what the doctrine is that you are standing on. And Peter says, always be ready to give an answer. And this is for every believer, not for pastors. So this is important. So they were arguing, Suzetio, arguing back and forth. Let's keep going. Verse 18, 15. While they conversed and argued or reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him or perceive him. Their eyes were covered. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you're having with one another as you walk and are sad? Because if they were reasoning, they would not be sad. But they couldn't get their accounts to agree as in their perceptions of what had happened to this Jesus. Why are you so sad? And then they go on and ask Jesus, are you a stranger around here? The one whose name was Cleophas answered him and said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? That you do not know the things which happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? <laughs> Again, my father taught me, when God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. So don't be in a hurry to answer a question that God asks you. When God asks you a question, He's giving you an opportunity to receive of him the answer. Not to give him what you think is the answer. God gives you an opportunity as an avenue to allow him speaking to you. Not to hear what you have to say. Who can instruct God? And God asks you a question. Say, son, do you know what? Where, where are you going? Has it happened to you before? You come out of your house. You are standing waiting to take a taxi. You hear the Holy Spirit ask you, where, where do you think you are going? You don't want to answer God and to the shop now. You think God did not know that is the shop you wanted to go when he asked you, where are you going? So when he asked you, where are you going? He said, Father, speak, Lord, for thy servants hear it. <laughs> where do you want me to go? Are you trying to get my attention to go somewhere? You have it. <laughs> what kind of conversation are you having? Jesus says, what things? <laughs> Imagine the subject of discussion is asking them, what, 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 what matters? And they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> See how they described him. Who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Keep going. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we're hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. See why they were arguing? Indeed. Besides all this, today is the third day 
since these things happened. But he told you now, he prepared you over a period of time that he will go to Jerusalem, not Galilee, not Capernaum, Jerusalem. He will be given up, handed over to the high priests. Is that not what he said? He will be persecuted, he will be crucified, and on the third day. So if anything, their, their attitude or expectation on the third day should have been one of exuberance and hope. Today is the third day. Today is the day he said he would rise. Today is the third day. He's, Come on, guys. Something has to happen. Because we have seen him drive right on the, on the donkey. We have seen him um, being called Hosanna, Hosanna. We have seen all these things, the frankincense, the gold, the myrrh, the people that went to embalm him. You know, all of it is, is in fulfillment of prophecy. So, guys, be excited. Today is the day he resurrects. Today is the third day since these things happened. Go on. Yes. And certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. They are informing Jesus. Next verse. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him, they did not see. Then he said to them, Oh, foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Because the prophets did speak. Yes, Ought not the... I love verse 26. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And glory here is not Shekinah power. Glory here is simple. Immortality. Or a glorified body. Or the full vitality of the kingdom of God. Are you understanding this? See when Paul is quoting that Jesus said that some of you here will not taste death until you enter the kingdom. There's some people he was referring to who will enter the kingdom or enter immortality while being humanly alive. But whether we live, oh, First Thessalonians 5, whether we die, oh, last, last. <laughs> last, last. So you can also say, ought not the Christ to have soft, soft let, let's see TPT before I, let's see TPT or the message or something. <laughs> Wasn't it necessary for Christ, the Messiah, to experience all these sufferings and then afterward enter into his glory? Good. The message. Don't you see that these things had to happen? That the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? You get it? Whom he did foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, the son, might be the firstborn of many brethren. Right? Who he destined, he also con, con, glorious. No, he, not, he justified. No, he called. Whom he called, he justified. This is Romans 8 29 going to 30 now. And those he justified, see the end result. He also glorified. Glorified there does not mean he gave you power on the earth to go around saying, I have glory. Glorified means the end of what God foreknew is your immortality. 
or your born again experience. He justified, he glorified. So right now we are living in the second to the last stage of our salvation experience. We're living in our justification phase. Looking forward to our glorification phase. <laughs> We're not worried about sin. We're not worried about the future. We're just enjoying this while it lasts. Does that make sense? And that's why I love that song of, of, of elevation worship. We will not wait until it comes. For here and now, your kingdom shall reign. Because if I'm a citizen of that kingdom and I'm here, I might as well make here look like there. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into, not glory, his glory. He has entered his own glory. Our glory. Here it comes. So glory is not a word that you look at as a blanket statement, just like faith. 27. And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. But you'd have thought that he taught them. By John 20, because again, you know you must put together all these accounts to get the full picture of what happened over the period of those days. By John 20, these guys were hiding around this period before Jesus appeared to them. They were hiding. Because they were afraid that Jews, now that Jesus has died, Jews will come and arrest them. Jesus made all these prophecies. Said he's coming, you're hiding. They've killed Jesus, they've taken him out. His tenure has ended. The Jews will come after us. John 20, 19, you see that? I'll end shortly and pick this up next week. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, that's the same Sunday, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for? Jesus came and stood in the midst. Said to them, peace be with you. These Emmaus guys, these two guys, in Luke 24, Jesus appears to them they go to the others of their company. Jesus shows up. Go back there to verse 36. Luke 24, 36. You see all that was happening in these days. They, they, they doubted. They were afraid. They were happy. Jesus appeared to them. They were glad. After he appeared to them, resurrected Jesus. Appeared to them. They went fishing. So this, this, is it Jesus that appeared? Is it a ghost? Is it? Because you know, he appeared to them on the water. Walking on the water. And they said it was a ghost. Yeah. So they were used to the concept of ghosts appearing instead of human beings. And they applied that concept to Jesus. As they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. I'm going all the way to 43. But they were terrified and frightened. King James, KJV. A spirit. Tipity. Give us translations. After meeting with the two disciples... And then these two went back to their company to meet the rest of the disciples where they were hiding. As we saw in John 20. Startled and terrified. Next slide. The disciples were convinced they were seeing a ghost. You see that? Standing there among them, he said, Peace, I am the living God. Don't be afraid. Go back to 36 in New King James. Peace to you, 37. 
but they were terrified and frightened and suppose they had seen a spirit, 38. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts, plural, plural, arise in your hearts? These are the guys that start off the, the church. Are you following me? Behold my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see. I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Go on. But while, look at this. They still did not believe for joy. They didn't believe for fear. Now they didn't believe for joy. I marveled and he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. Don't ask me. When you see Jesus, you ask him to explain to you how fish and honey is resurrection communion. Fish and honeycomb. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and honeycomb. 43. See this. And he took it and ate in their presence. Immortal body. First of all, immortal body had flesh and bones. Because it says, spirits do not have flesh and bones as I do. And then he ate. John 21, 1 to 4. Jesus had appeared to them. They did not believe for fear. They did not believe for joy. <laughs> he had appeared to them and left them for a while. And you see this, after these things, Jesus showed himself again. Somebody say again. again. To the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And this is how he showed himself, pretty much, right? Yeah. Next verse. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And as always, him being the gang leader and mob action, they said to him in King James, we go with you. So they leave their messianic expectations even after the resurrected Jesus had appeared to them. So before you get angry that somebody's not believing you, today, today, remember that Jesus appeared alive multiple times to his disciples. Mm -mm. You will be my witnesses. Kinikong, kinikong. He went fishing. Excuse me. Was it not fish you were fishing? When I say follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And you left your nets and followed me. So fishing here was referring to Peter going back to what he left to follow Jesus. Are you here? It was Peter going back to what they had left to follow Jesus. Because he says... Immediately they, they laid down their nets. That means they stopped fishing. They shut down their fishing business to follow Jesus. That's the meaning of laid down their nets. That's when Jesus was preaching and he says, I said to you, no one. Jesus, they said to him, say, Master, we have left all to follow you. These were men of Galilee who were now in Capernaum. Are you following me now? So they left their, they shut down their businesses to follow Jesus. And Jesus has appeared to them alive. 
And Peter said, no. I'm reopening my business. I'm going back to how it used to be before this guy came, changed our lives, and died on us. And this one that has appeared a few times, I don't know, man. I don't know. And the rest of them say, we go with you. See, 21 was 3. John 21 and 3. They went out immediately and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. The first night, first night Jesus called them. What happened? When they left and went back to their call, they expected to start to catch. But they went straight back to where they were before he called them. Catching. You, because if what you have done is you have, you have taken three and a half years of your life, deleted it, and went right back to where you were, catching nothing. Verse 4. The morning had now come. <laughs> Same Jesus. Glorified Jesus. Stood up on the shore. Yet the disciples, yet the disciples did not. So I end here. They struggled with the fullness of what Jesus came to do. And they struggled with the fullness of how he went about doing it. Is that clear? This is what brings about the initial doctrinal or dogmatic confusions in the gospel. It will take a while for Peter to find his feet and gain standing. It will take a while for the disciples to find standing. This is why when Paul began to receive understanding and revelation, he looks at his disciples and he knows these are not people to advise me. These events determine how things start to play out as soon as Jesus ascends. Because he's still, this all the nonsense, in quote, that Jesus then spends 40 days after resurrection teaching them. 40 days. Peter gets up to speak in Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Ghost came upon them. And then when they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And instantly their mind went to John's baptism. I will then explain to you, maybe next week, how that John's baptism, as we see in Acts chapter 2, was not referring to or was not targeted at believers. Because the people that heard them speak in their language were Jews. Jews from every nation under heaven. There's the definition that um, in, in Pentecost, it was people from every nation. What were they doing in Israel for a Jewish feast? If you are not a Jew, what are you doing in a Jewish feast? Can we think? There were a few proselytes, as Greeks who believed in Judaism, but you see what scripture, let scripture speak for itself. Acts 2, 5, Acts 2, 5. Give me text only, please. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, Jews. Keep going, verse 6. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Go on. 
Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it then that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parsians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Greeks who had converted to Judaism. Cretans and Arab, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. There's Jews who have their native language, but at that time, because they were part of the Greco-Roman world, the language of general communication was Greek. Just like our language of general communication now is English because we've been colonized by the British. Does that make sense? So you had native Greeks from every nation or area. Don't forget that even when Paul starts his ministry, he starts targeting Greek Jews in Greek territories. I'll show you next week. You see where Paul actually entered teaching us Gentiles out of frustration. <laughs> Jews give me hard time. So <laughs> he abandoned them and turned to the Gentiles. And then shortly after that, he then starts calling himself apostle to the Gentiles. And left Peter being the one who becomes the apostle to the Jews. Even though the only time Peter spoke to Jews as it were was Acts chapter 2. Because he then gets that call to go to Colinus' house in chapter 10. So who was the first person to preach to a Jew, a, a Gentile? Peter. But he's shortly known as an apostle to the Jews. While Paul is referred to as the apostle to the Gentiles. So all of this is going on. Peter and the rest in the book of Acts are preaching the word of God. Saul is not a believer. He's persecuting the church. The disciples are preaching the word of God until Philip starts to preach Christ. Yes, following, yes. Following off. Peter was not the first to preach Christ. They were preaching the word of God. I'll show you next week. Saul was yet unsaved. Saul was not the first person to preach Christ. Saul or Paul, whatever you call him. First person on record to preach Christ and start going from place to place preaching Christ was Philip. But these other guys were preaching. One person began to preach Christ. Saul gets saved into the backdrop of Philip preaching Christ. I'm trying to end. I'll end with this teaser, right? <laughs> Eight and four. It's amazing how much is hidden in plain sight in the scriptures, supposedly. Acts 8 4. Therefore, those who were scattered everywhere went everywhere preaching what? The word. Small, small w. Yeah. Or you can say preaching the scriptures. Make sense? Yes, see verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria 
and preached Christ. This is the first record since Jesus ascended that he began to be preached. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Saul is still persecuting the church by this point. Right? Philip goes on in chapter 8 up to verse 11. Go to verse 11 of Acts 8. And they heeded him, that's the sorcerer, because he had astonished them with his sorcerers for a long time. See verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached, look at this convergence. This is where I'm going to end for today. The merger. Where these two things that appear to be two different messages or two different gospels come together. When they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and Kai, which is to say. So the gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of Christ. Is the gospel of his grace. Is the gospel of the word of his truth. It took one person to bring the merger. So while some people are preaching God or preaching kingdom or preaching repentance and this other person is probably preaching Christ, it took Philip to come to bring it together and began to teach in every place the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name or which is to say the name of Christ Jesus because he is the kingdom. Against this backdrop is where he meets the Ethiopian eunuch and begins to teach the Ethiopian eunuch Christ from Isaiah. Philip, not Paul. Paul was still unsaved. Begins to teach starting at that scripture in Isaiah. Like a sheep led to the slaughters. God has laid upon him. He says starting at that scripture in Isaiah, Philip Preached Christ to the Philippian eunuch. So against this backdrop, Peter goes to Colinius. Holy Ghost falls upon them. Saul gets saved and enters the gospel of Christ, which is the gospel of the kingdom, even if Paul did not emphasize the kingdom. Have you learned anything? (laughs) One gospel. You see the convergence? The things pertaining the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. That's our message. The kingdom of God, which is the name. That's our gospel. That's the, the end of grace. The things pertaining the kingdom and the name of Jesus. One gospel. It might have taken them a while to settle into it, but eventually. They converged on it. We should see that as an advantage. Not cause for confusion. You don't have to then go back and make the same mistake John the Baptist made. And make the same mistake Peter made. And make the same mistake all these other guys made. When you have the benefit of hindsight and revelation. To say this, that, 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 that met us here. So this is the fulcrum of what we preach. And because the church is too lazy with Bible study, too lazy to sit down and learn, we just keep transferring baggage from one generation to the other. One generation to the other, and it gets worse each time. 
Because this is the laziest Bible understanding generation there's ever been. Our fathers didn't know this truth, but they spent more time searching the scriptures. And as you this, this was not this was not strange. They can stay all day. They're not seeing Christ though. But this Bible that they loved and believed, they can stay all day, three days, four days a week. Yes, you. No instruments, no fan, no AC, no, 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 no fortunate, no microphone, no benefit, no privilege. They could stay for days searching the scriptures. Of course, not finding eternal life. But this generation is lazy. Quick fix microwave generation. Quick fix microwave generation. You don't want to learn. Oh, but in this house you will learn. Because the world out there is looking for people that have answers. And we have the answers. It's only a matter of time before you meet the question. Because in, in the eternal plan of God, the answer always comes before the question. We don't understand. It's because there is an answer that a question arises. So in his providence, he equips his saints with the answers ahead of the question. Someone, there's questions that we start running and looking for answers. No, the answers came first. Just like the price for sin came first. <laughs> the sacrifice for sin came first. Before the, before the actual act of sin. So God equips us with the answers because the questions are waiting out there. Yes. It's not the questions waiting for answers. It's answers waiting for questions. Questions come, we supply the answers. It's a level of stability you will come into. It's a level of kingdom responsibility that you will come into. Once you grasp understanding of this. Is it okay to take a few seconds and just give God thanks and praise any way that you can? Thank you, Father. Thank you for the restoration that we have to your kingdom. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for light and understanding that is flooding the hearts of your people this place and all across the world thank you that darkness is not able to comprehend it thank you for what Jesus did thank you for what it means to us thank you for what it brings us into we give you glory and praise well that's it for today's teaching we trust it has been worth your time for more of these messages from our stables Kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the Truth Simply Put or at War the Church. You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus 234-70-881-8864. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.